Well, if you have a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're back in our Daniel series this morning. And, and I will turn there as well. In his autobiography titled Confessions, uh, the North African church father, Augustine of Hippo, uh, penned these kind of powerful words. He said, God, you made us with yourself as our goal. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. You made us with yourself as our goal, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. I find that word restless so evocative. It speaks to what it often feels like to be human. We are restless, we're unsettled, we're buzzing with desires and expectations, with anxieties and disappointments. We're unsure where we belong, but we're strongly suspicious that we've not yet arrived, that we're far from home. And I think that feeling of restlessness sometimes articulates something to our souls that maybe not even our mind has fully started to grasp yet. I'm not where I should be. I'm not where I'm meant to be. And that restlessness is a pointer to that. I'm reminded of of Jesus' story of the prodigal son In it, there's this young man who's down on his luck. He's living in a far country. He's scraping to get by. He's feeding pigs ever since he blew his uh, inheritance on some wild nights and some poor choices. And, And Jesus says that one day he's looking hungrily at the pig slop and it says he came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. And he's able to articulate his restlessness and to identify that he's not where he's meant to be. To use the language of the book of Daniel, this young man discovers that he's living in exile and all at once he is desperate to find his way home. What is home? Augustine said, God, you made us with yourself as our goal. Home is resting in the love of Jesus. Home is making our way back to that primary relationship for which we were created, which is namely just communion with our Creator. Home is the end of our alienation and rebellion and the restoration of our connection with God. And we're back in Daniel this morning, and as we pick up his narrative again, Daniel and his people have been living in exile in Babylon for going on 66 years. For nearly a lifetime, he's resided in a foreign land, he's served pagan kings, and he knows how he and his people got there. It was his own people's idolatry and injustice that landed them far from home in exile. In their faithlessness, they had wandered 
away from God and they experience the curse that is just the natural consequences of our actions. And now here in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel as the representative of his people is coming to his senses and he's helping his community take their first steps toward home. And this is what we read, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel at this point, he's an old man. He's settled in his ways, but something has made him restless. Events have unsettled him. There's recently been regime change in Babylon. The the dynasty of Nebuchadnezzar the Great has fallen and invaders have taken over the capital and these upstart armies of Medes and Persians have established themselves as the predominant power in the region. And Daniel's whole world is just thrown into flux. But if you read closely, what's actually stirring Daniel to action is what he's reading in God's word. He's pouring over the scrolls of the prophet Jeremiah and he's remembering the message that God had delivered to his people in Daniel's youth when they were just freshly traumatized refugees trying to reorient and and rebuild their lives there on the banks of the Euphrates River in what is modern-day Iraq. At that time, God's word had been clear, but it seemed far distant. God had spoken through the prophet these words. He said, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord. Then a few chapters later, Jeremiah assured the exiles, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. So Daniel is starting to see the signs. He's discerning the beginning of their fulfillment. He's on year 66. Babylon has fallen. The end of their exile is at hand. The the Lord in his grace will soon visit his long-lost people and lead them home. And such a promise prompts Daniel to pray. We read this. Then I turned, this is verse 3, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying. So why does Daniel pray? Does he doubt that God will actually carry through on his commitment? Does he think that 
somehow by praying he can maybe speed up or, or grease the course of events? Does he conceive of, of prayer as some sort of good deed that will earn God's smile and, and be credited to his people's account? I don't actually think it's any of those things. Indeed, I believe it's Daniel's confidence in God that moves him to pray. He prays because he's looking to connect with humanity's divine rescuer, not control him. Daniel prays because he's seeking to fall in step with God's gracious activity in the world. I hope you realize it, but all prayer depends on grace. In kind of our natural state, we're, we're alienated from God by our stubbornness, by our rebellion, by our kind of selfish insistence that we get to decide what is right, what is wrong, what is true. So we've got this sin, this brokenness, this, these failures that create a gulf between us and the one who created us for himself. And in our imperfections, we have no hope to bridge that divide. But amazingly, we don't have to because God condescends to engage with us. He extends to us unearned hospitality and he welcomes us in to his rest. And such an act, it comes at great cost to God but to us, it's extended as a free gift. Receiving a gift is actually a very transformative experience. I think we have this wrong-headed notion about what it means to receive God's free gifts. I don't know about you, but when I think of free gifts, I think of um, swag. The stuff that you find at like display tables or at the booths of fairs, the stuff we all get, the stuff that's given away at no cost and, and impersonally, usually because someone is trying to sell you something and the stuff is cheap anyway. And I think we have this kind of caricature of Christianity that, that just sees the church as this salesman at his table who is trying to give away what is kind of the existential equivalent of get-out-of-jail-free cards, right? Come get your free ticket out of hell for the simple exchange of your contact information. All we ask is that you declare yourself, your allegiance to our God to, to boost his numbers and his social profile and just join our club, make a small monthly contribution and... And this free gift will be yours. We'll even throw in this God-branded tote bag. No extra cost. Sorry, I've listened to too many NPR fundraising things. But this is actually the wrong picture of what it means to receive God's free gift. Let me give you a different vision of this. The most expensive gift I have ever given, I gave on July 5th, 2007. And when I gave this gift, I genuinely didn't expect any form of 
financial repayment from the person I presented it to. The gift was given freely, but it wasn't given flippantly. Because I knew if the gift was received, the experience would be utterly transformative, both for me as the giver and for the person who chose to receive it. Such an exchange would establish a relationship between us. It would inextricably tie our our persons and our future together, and we would be fundamentally changed. This is not the sort of free gift that you find shoved in the back of the closet or the drawer after a few months and, and throw in the trash. This is the gift that you hold close to your heart, that you grab and take with you as you're walking out when the house is on fire. So you guys are sharp. What is the gift that I gave on July 5th, 2007, and to whom did I give it? Any guesses? Yes, Larry, my engage, or our engagement ring. The ring I gave Brianna when I asked her to marry me. And what did she have to do to receive it? Well, she simply said yes, which apparently was quite difficult for her in her stunned state because the first time I asked, all I got was deer in the headlights. And then I regrouped. I asked again, and I said, please. (laughs) And it worked. But in truth, she had to say more than yes. I wasn't just walking around offering that ring to any woman who would say yes. The person who received it had to be saying the same thing I was saying, which was this. I promise before God, our family, and our friends to be your loving and faithful partner to share my life in love with you in wealth and in poverty, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times for as long as we both shall live. Another word for saying the same thing is confession. And in Scripture, receiving God's grace, experiencing Christ's Radical hospitality, it goes hand in hand with confession. Remember what the fisherman Simon said to Jesus after he experienced the miraculous catch of fish that that nearly sunk his boat. Simon, who we know as Peter, shouted out, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. The experience of grace prompts his confession. So what is Simon confessing? He's confessing who God is and his need for him. He's admitting what God already knows to be true about him. Simon sees and acknowledges what is unlike God in his life. Confession is abandoning our rosy but false self-image in exchange for a clear glimpse of who we 
and who God actually is. My favorite little book on prayer is by a guy named Sky Jathani called uh, What If Jesus Was Serious About Prayer? And in it, he writes this. He says, Confession is how we shatter our illusions about ourselves. The human capacity for self-deception is almost limitless. And if left unchecked, it can transplant us into a fantasy in which we need no grace and where we are always righteous, always correct, always pure. Confession shatters this fantasy with sober self-assessment guided by our sisters and brothers and the Holy Spirit. Together we are gently led first to see and then to speak truth about ourselves. As we do, God's grace meets us. This grace reminds us that we are loved as we are, sin and all, even as it spurs us forward toward what we are called to become. So with God's grace on the horizon and the end of their Babylonian exile looming, Daniel prays to the Lord his God and makes confession on behalf of his community. And in the time we have left, we're going to walk through his prayer. But before we do, I just want to kind of address the the fasting sackcloth and ashes bit. Fasting is an indicator of focus. It's a marker of how important this request is to Daniel. He's so concerned with the spiritual condition of his people that his life's kind of physical necessities fade into the background. And then the putting on the scratchy sackcloth and anointing one's head with ashes from the fire, those are are rhythms in ancient Israel of intense mourning. But I think more significantly, they're, they're what God's people did when they were confronting confessing and turning from their national sin. So he's taking upon himself these rhythms, these rituals of mourning and repentance as he seeks the Lord in prayer. And then this is what he prays starting in verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel begins his prayer with adoration. He recognizes and acknowledges who God is. He knows that this whole conversation is predicated on God's grace, that God has, in his own will, chosen to shower us with attention, with devotion, with radical hospitality that we do not deserve. 
He is faithful even when we are faithless. So we come to him in prayer. Daniel is saying the same things about God that Scripture affirms. He's agreeing with God's own self-declarations of his own character. But quickly, Daniel moves from confessing who God is to what we think of as kind of confession proper, acknowledging where he and his people have fallen short of God's goodness and beauty and justice. And he seems to affirm the rightness of God's judgment. We read in verse 7, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Daniel seems to be giving thanks that God's hand of judgment rested upon them, which I find incredibly surprising. But I imagine this is because Daniel knows the Scriptures. He knows what Job reported in Job chapter 5. Behold, how happy is the man who God reproves, corrects. So don't just despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and gives relief. He wounds and his hands heal. Or maybe that which the prophet Isaiah attested to in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed God will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He is faithful to bring forth justice. So he will not be disheartened or crushed. Or finally, what it says in the book of Hebrews. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He gives thanks that God has chosen not to leave us lost and in a mess of our own brokenness, but that he corrects us, that he guides us back to the path of life. And that thanksgiving, it doesn't mean that Daniel can't lament the pain and suffering that they've experienced. It's, it's natural to mourn the negative consequences of our action. It's, 
If I'm honest, that tends to be the thing I mourn the most. Oh, man, my chickens have come home to roost, and there has been pain and collateral damage inflicted on myself and others. So Daniel, in his prayer, he still mourns that. He still laments. He continues in verse 12. He has confirmed, God has confirmed, his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. What seems to sadden Daniel most is that even though his people experience kind of the full ravages of what their actions have brought about, they've not learned They remain unchanged, unbroken, unrepentant, hopelessly lost, and in need of a Savior. The discipline of God has not led them to godly grief or genuine repentance. Verse 14, Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity, And has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. And have made a name for yourself. As at this day we have sinned. And we have done wickedly. As we walk through Daniel's prayer, I, I notice something else challenging here too. Daniel says we a lot. He includes himself and his nation's guilt and shame. Israel's sins were, were many and they were terrible. There was injustice, idolatry, violence, greed, abuse of power, betraying God and his covenant. Yet when Daniel left Judah, he was just a teenager. And in Scripture, he's never depicted as disobeying God. In fact, besides Jesus, Daniel is one of the Bible's most loyal, most faithful, most righteous characters. We have no direct evidence that he personally participated in any of the rebellious acts that landed his people in exile. Yet Daniel's not trying to parse guilt and responsibility. When he confesses his community's sins, his nation's sins, he includes himself in their wickedness. Again, to to quote my favorite little book on prayer, God called a people to himself, a community Daniel saw his connection to God as as fundamentally corporate. To be unified to God meant to be united with God's people as well. We cannot claim the blessings of our community, but deny the burdens of its sins. I think of this as I look back at all the kind of defeats and divisions and disorder 
that took place within the church during our last kind of two years of political strife and pandemic. And honestly, you can kind of extrapolate it back even further if you'd like and, and look at the conduct and character of the, the Christian church as a whole these past several decades. And me and my flesh, I want to be careful to specify <laughs> before the Lord exactly what I think I can own personally. I want to justify myself and, and declare myself innocent of other wrongdoing of those within my, my tribe. I, I want to separate myself maybe for some of the ugliness that was done in his name. I, I say, thank you, God, that I am not like those other Christians that tarnish your name. But Daniel seems to swat down those little games of self-righteousness. Instead, he says, find your place within God's family and confess and lament and find healing in Christ. Daniel challenges us to say the same thing about these situations that God says about them and to quit trying to justify ourselves in fact, the Lord often invites us into corporate repentance so that we might experience corporate forgiveness and renewal. I stumbled upon something that an old biblical scholar from the Netherlands wrote this week, Herman Veldkamp. He says, What distinguishes us from the world is not that we're less wicked but that by the grace of God, we've learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. When we stop confessing, we stop being patients of the great physician. What did Jesus say? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the Apostle John adds this a little bit later in his epistle. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I know no one likes to apologize no one enjoys owning up to our past wrongs and hurts. We want to leave them in the past. We want to forget. We want others to forget. We want to claim things were not as bad as they were, as they seemed. We want to kind of cloud the issue with comparison. But what God declares, he says, what you need is not a better excuse but you need reconciling grace. And our path to grace leads through confession. We must say the same things as God about our past, about our brokenness, about our actions to accept his transformative gift. And after confession, Daniel moves to petition. He, he asks God, he pleads with God to fulfill his purposes for his people and to hallow, to, to make great his name. 
The prayer finishes like this. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. For your own sake, Lord, end our exile. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This prayer is prompted by grace and it ends with an appeal to grace. And in the end, Daniel is concerned about God's honor and glory in the world. God heal. God forgive. Wash away our guilt. Remove our shame. Manifest your strength in our weakness. One, because we need relief. But more importantly, because we want the world who's watching to see the great glory of your grace. They know we don't deserve it. But you, your love changes things. Your grace is incredible and your victory is effective to defeat the power of evil, sin, and death and make all things new. I read Daniel's prayer and I realize that our prayers are often too small. And they're too small because we forget the greatness of our God and His power. They're too small because we forget the depths of His grace. We try to say the right words. We try to justify ourselves. We try to Ask for small things because we forget that it's all about His grace. He's promised to wash us clean, to make us new, to secure for us a future and a hope, to use us as agents of His grace and His welcome in the world to reflect his beauty. And every time we open the pages of Scripture, it should prompt us to pray because we know we have access, we have an open door to relationship with our Creator. We're not trying to control him, we're trying to know him and to be known by him and to fall in step with his grace that is at work in the world. And God invites us to experience his rest, both individually and as a community. 
And today we learn that our, our first step home, our first step back to God, comes through confession. It's how we respond to God's grace. It, it opens the door not just for our sins to be blotted out, but for us to be made new, to be fully reconciled with God and with others by the power of Jesus' sacrifice. And we're going to end our worship this morning at the communion table. So I invite uh, the elders to come forward to distribute the elements. And I invite the worship team to come forward as we continue. But I want you to realize that when we come to this table, we are confessing something. We are confessing that I am a sinner in need of grace and that God loves me anyway. We're confessing that Jesus made a way for us to be made new, to be reconciled, to be washed clean. What it took was the breaking of his body, represented by these broken pieces of cracker. And it took the outpouring of his blood to forge a relationship with us that would change him and would change us forever. That would give us a future and a hope at rest in God's love. So when you come to this table today, I challenge you, this is not the swag table. This is not something we approach flippantly. It is an act of faith that says, God, I will receive this amazing gift because I confess that I need it and I'm willing for you to change me and rescue me and wash me clean.